Hey, one more thing before you go. What do you do when weeks after you gave birth, you're diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disorder? Where do you find the will to survive and thrive after learning how to breathe, walk, and talk again? We're going to answer these questions and more when we talk to a woman who experienced all of this in her life, and it was a life-changing event. She went on to find her happily ever after, and she's going to inspire you to overcome your challenges as well. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. My guest in this episode is Holly Francis. She is a Canadian writer, speaker, an illness survivor, and an advocate. She is a certified trainer as well. She's also a mom in a blended family of five in the face behind Holly after GBS, which we'll talk about on social media. Her recovery videos have inspired millions of people around the world. When she was 26, just weeks after giving birth, she was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disorder called Guillain-Barre syndrome. She spent two months fighting for her life in the ICU on a ventilator, completely paralyzed, unable to be a mother to her newborn baby girl, over time, and with diligence, fortitude, the will to survive, as well as the love of her daughter, she learned to breathe on her own, strengthen her muscles to eat, drink, walk, and talk again. She went on to reinvent her life to inspire, motivate, and educate others going through GBS. Her journey is documented in her viral YouTube video, Holly's Journey from Gillian-Barre Syndrome to Happily Ever After, and has a new book coming out in January 2023 entitled Happily Ever After. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me and giving me the opportunity to share my story with your uh, listeners. You know, I, I, you have an amazing journey. I think that, uh, you know, you and I spoke a little bit before we started and uh, I, I, uh, I respect you and I value the fact that you've come through this on such a positive uh, end that you inspire and motivate others in that are going through the same thing. And, and, and I'm sure anybody that's listening to this, you can take those lessons that you are sharing and use them in your own life to overcome your obstacles, whatever they happen to be. Absolutely. Well, I, I like to, um, I kind of like start at the beginning. It's like a little, a little uh, like the old show, This Is Your Life. Uh, kind of start it from the scratch. Oh, well, almost scratch. <laughs> Tell me where you grew up. So I grew up in uh, actually where I where I live now in uh, Edmonton, Alberta, and uh, I grew up um, kind of in back and forth between there and Drayton Valley, where is where my uh, dad lived, and yeah, so born and raised in Canada, and uh, I tra I travel a lot. I've been to uh, Arizona quite a few times. Hopefully, and hopefully, when it wasn't like uh, 120 degrees here, <laughs> <laughs> I have actually been there when it's that hot. But I mean, our winters are so cold that we we welcome it. You welcome it, yeah. You know, it, it's it's funny because I I told you uh, I'm originally from Colorado, and I lived up yep. in the mountains at about 8,500 feet, right behind Pikes Peak. Actually, our front look out our front window and right on the deck, the back side of Pikes Peak was our front yard. So we had snow from October all the way through May, June, sometimes June. It even okay, snowed. so you know what it's like then. Yeah, and it was like, we came yeah. down here in 2005 in Arizona. And when we got here and opened the truck, it was 121 degrees. It was breaking a record. <laughs> My wife about threw me back in the truck. <laughs> she was like, yeah. That? Yeah, that's shocking. So yeah, that's what that's what we deal with here in Canada. And that's, uh, we're actually very lucky right now. It's only about 30 degrees um, Fahrenheit. So that's actually quite balmy and nice for us. So well, that yeah, kind of works. I, that way I'd be freezing <laughs> to death up there now. Yeah. <laughs> my, my blood has thinned up so much. It'd be like, no, nah, I'm going back home. <laughs> uh, so did you, uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? Did you go to college? 
I did. I went to college. I went to university to uh, be in human resources. So I've always had a love for working with people and helping people. And so I got into human resources. And uh, after I finished university, I, I was working um, uh, for a drilling company, actually, in the oil and gas industry. And uh, yeah, HR was kind of my passion and uh, very, very devoted to it and just really working with people and figuring out like what sort of things I could help them with and and uh, just really have always loved working with people. That's a, that's the reason I became a cop. I enjoyed my job and I like working with people and communicating. So we have a little bit in common there. Yeah. We have much more in common we'll talk about here in just a little bit. But um, uh, that's a, that is a, to me, I think working in human resources has a double-edged sword kind of, sort of. <laughs> Because, you know, most everybody, you need it, and most everybody really appreciates it, unless you get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yes. It's all like, yeah. like being a cop, too. Everything's all good <laughs> until you get in trouble. Uh, do you have any brothers or sisters? Yeah, I do have two older brothers, so grew up as the only girl and the baby in the family as well. And uh, when I was growing up, I mean, I really wanted to just grow up and, and be a mother. That was my uh, kind of main dream in life was to become a mom. And I think it, I think a lot of it comes from being raised with, with two brothers and wanting to have that, that sisterly connection with somebody, but not having that kind of, I didn't have another girl in the family. I didn't have a sister. Um, so I really wanted to have a child that I could bond mm -hmm. with that way. That makes, well, that makes a lot of sense. It does. I have two daughters <laughs> and uh, we wanted a son, but uh, I am 110% happy that I have two daughters and uh, they're wonderful young women that uh, that helped me through my journey, actually. So I bet. Um, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's good. Boys, girls, doesn't matter. Absolutely. Children are a gift from the, from the universe that gives, that gives us something that we can uh, live for and strive for. And, uh, absolutely. And I, we'll talk about that too, because you went through an amazing ordeal. I think it was right after you were pregnant, correct? Yes, it was. It was so, several weeks. I mean, what happened in 2011? Yeah, so I had recently been married, uh, recently got married, and then um, I was I was working at the time. I was life was really good. I was very successful in my career. Um, I had got pregnant. Uh, we were working towards uh, building our family and starting our life together. And uh, my pregnancy went really well. I had a very healthy pregnancy. Everything was flowing just perfectly in life. And then I gave birth to my daughter. Um, labor went quite smoothly. I had a few hiccups and ended up having to do a C-section, but overall it went quite well. And then when my daughter was born, uh, we named her Casey and she was just our little angel and she was, she was perfect and she was healthy and, and life was just starting. And it felt like life had just begun for me. So I was 26 and I felt like I had my whole life ahead of me and I felt like I just couldn't wait to start this new phase of my life. Uh, like I said, I'd always wanted to be a mom and now I felt like I had finally reached all of my goals and all of my dreams were coming true. And uh, I went home, I was recovering at home from my C-section. I was with, with my daughter and my little family and, and just thinking about all the things that we were gonna do together just getting really excited about life and not, none of that actually ended up happening. Um, all the things that I wanted to do were very quickly taken away from me. Uh, so within, it was less than a month, it was between a little over three weeks, I had a strange tingle in my fingertip. And at first I thought I had burnt myself on something. Uh, I, I didn't know what was going on. It was, it was this weird feeling. And I'm like, I didn't burn myself. So I'm not sure what's going on. Just try to ignore it. And then within probably about an hour, um, I kind of had this weird weakness in my legs, just kind of felt overly tired, felt like I was kind of having to drag myself around the house. And I'm thinking, well, I'm, I am a new mom and I'm, I'm still re recovering from this C-section and I'm really tired, not sleeping as much and breastfeeding is tough. And it's a lot, lot going on right now, so it's probably nothing. Probably just really tired, just need a good night's sleep. And then from, from there, and probably only about an hour later, I had this weird pain in my neck. And 
uh, it came on very suddenly and, and very severely. And it kind of went from the back of my neck and then kind of carried on the way on the way down. And I was just thinking about everything. And I'm like, well, I've got this weird tingling and I've got this weird pain in my neck and it's getting worse by the minute almost. And so I end up going online and I'm Googling like, what is wrong with me? What is happening? Why am I having this pain in my neck? It's probably like a pinched nerve or something. So I Google it and of course, yes, it's a pinched nerve. So I'm thinking, okay, well, I've got a pinched nerve now. I self-diagnose myself. As we all do. Uh, yeah and i'm just whatever it, it is what it is and i i took i think some advil and, and nothing helped and, and and i'm talking like within like 15 20 30 minutes the pain is so severe that i'm in tears and i'm crying and i'm like i can't even handle this pain it's it's so severe i've never felt anything like this before i've never had a pinched nerve before but this is pretty painful um and I'm like, you know what, I can't deal with this anymore. I think I need to go to see a doctor. So that night it was, it was like, we're talking minus 45 that night. Uh, So it was, it was a blizzard outside and it was horrible. So if I can just kind of explain where my head was at is it was that cold and that miserable outside. And I was still like, I need to see a doctor. That's how bad the pain was. So I went to just a a walk-in clinic and uh, it was very lucky that no one else was out that night because it was so miserable outside. And so I was able to get in right away. And the doctor that I saw was, was horrible. He barely even looked up from his notebook. And he's like, what's the, what's the matter? And I'm like, I, I think I have a pinched nerve. And he's like, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you probably have a pinched nerve. So he wrote me a prescription for some T3s for some extra strength Tylenol and and said, you probably need to see a physiotherapist. Uh, You can call one tomorrow. Here you go. Have a great day. So I walk out of there and I'm like, well, I don't don't feel like I got any answers. And as I was walking out of there, I almost tripped on what I thought was carpet. And I looked down and I'm like, there's no carpet. And I'm like, my my legs are getting weaker and and it feels like I'm having trouble walking. But again, you trust what your doctor tells you. And I assumed that he knew what he was talking about and that I had a pinched nerve. So I went home and I uh, took some more meds and the pain was there. It, It didn't even help at all. So again, I'm thinking, well, this pinched nerve is severe and I don't know how people handle this, but I'm going to just try to get a good night's sleep and I'm going to call a physiotherapist in the morning and see if I can get in for a massage. And so I go up the stairs that night and and I'm really struggling to get up the stairs. I'm having to hold onto the banister and drag my legs. And uh, that night when I went to sleep, I put my daughter to bed and uh the pain again is so severe. She put her to sleep and I'm trying to massage my neck. I'm massaging the back of my shoulders and nothing is helping. And I'm Googling all these things that can help pinch nerves and nothing is helping. And I'm just crying. Tears are just rolling down my face and just going, I, I don't know what to do. Like this is so severe. And my daughter, this, this goes by a couple hours that I'm just in so distraught and my daughter wakes up to, to feed several hours after I put her to bed. And then when I stood up to go to her, cause I had been sitting on the floor, uh, I stood up and my legs completely gave out on me and coll- I collapsed on the floor cause I, my legs were no longer working. And that was when I immediately knew that something was seriously wrong. Again, I was still thinking it was a pinched nerve, uh, but was thinking this is a very serious pinch nerve that I'm losing the ability to walk. So I was very fortunate that I was able to stand back up and kind of lock my legs in place and I was I was okay. And I woke up my husband at the time and said, you know what, something is seriously wrong with me. I need to go to the hospital and I need to see an, another doctor and either get another opinion or, or get something for the pain and weakness. So I, I went to the hospital. I had my husband drop me off uh, because I'm like, I don't want my daughter to be in uh, basically the, the ER where it's probably very busy and, and noisy. So I said, you just drop me off and I'm going to phone you when I'm finished. I had no idea that that would be the last time that I would actually step outside for many, many months. So I, I went into the hospital and from there I was very fortunate that 
not so not so fortunate but my case was very severe and it was happening very quickly so my my symptoms were progressing very quickly so it was helpful in the fact that they were able to kind of see what was happening and they could see how quickly my paralysis was coming on the doctor that i seen had never seen uh, a case of gbs before which is what i was later diagnosed with but he knew that something was wrong. He called a neurologist to come down to see me. And that neurologist had seen a case of Guillain-Barre syndrome before. Um, and that was when he said, I, I think I know what's wrong with you. I think you have a very rare autoimmune disorder and you're going to need to stay at the hospital. And I remember, again, I'm, I'm in my 20s, so I'm very naive and I'm thinking, okay, just give me some medicine and send me on my way. And uh, they're like, this this is quite a severe um, disorder and we don't know quite how severe or how bad your case is going to be so we just want you to be in the hospital so we that we can monitor you and we're going to bring um, your family members they basically need to come to the hospital because this is an emergency and uh, we're just going to see how it goes that's but i mean that's a hell of a day <laughs> and, and this is or a couple so from of days. Couple of days, yeah. So, so basically, from my very first symptom, um, which was that tingle in my fingertip, that was at noon, and by the time I was um, not officially, but they predicted that it was Guillain-Barre syndrome, it was less than twelve hours wow. before That's... I was in the hospital. That kind of that is a life-changing event that that kind of shook you and your family to the core. I think. Absolutely. And uh, it was just so shocking. I had never heard the words Guillain-Barre syndrome before. I had never heard of even an autoimmune disorder. I think I was, like I said, in my 20s and you don't pay attention to kind of all that stuff because you think you'll never get sick. If you do get sick, it's going to be when you're 50, 60, 70, 80, right? And so when he told me that I had a rare illness, my life was just completely rocked and I, I didn't know what to expect um my per my case came on very very quickly so within 72 hours of arriving at the hospital um paralysis spread through my through my body i could no longer move my legs i could no longer move my arms uh, mm. eventually it moved up to basically my diaphragm and affected my ability to breathe and I was rushed to ICU and put on a ventilator. And at that point, I truly believed that my life was over. I felt um, that I was dying. I felt like there was no recovering from that. Uh, my family came in to try to comfort me and be there for me. And I thought that they were saying goodbye. So it was a very, very hard time. Um, very life-changing, absolutely, to to not believe that you're ever going to get out of ICU. Obviously, I'm here today. <laughs> you did. You did it. <laughs> you know, it it is a life-changing event like that that kind of has to force you to reinvent your life, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. You know, um, you're very, very lucky. I'm sure you've been told that many times. But uh, luckily, you had the perseverance and the fortitude and the strength, you know, to pull yourself through this. Uh, if, if you don't mind, I'm going to just kind of give everybody kind of a brief uh, explanation of the, this syndrome. Um, I always have trouble pronouncing it, though, even though I looked at this for a week. <laughs> Guillain-Barre syndrome is a very rare inflammatory disorder of the peripheral nerves outside the brain and spinal cord. Fewer than 20,000 cases per year is what uh, comes about. So that 20, that's U.S. cases per year. I'm assuming in Canada, it, it may be less or similar to that. But um, population-wise, if you look at yep. it from there, it would be less than that 20,000. Yep. So you, well, I won't say you were the lucky one. <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, treatment can help, but this condition cannot be cured. So I'm guessing you are managing this very well, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> which we can talk about some of your methodologies. Uh, the condition may be triggered by an acute bacterial or viral infection. Did they make any, any indications to you as to what may have caused yours? 
Yeah, they do. Um, so like you said, GBS can be triggered by various different uh, things. But one of the common things is that it's basically an autoimmune response. So anything that triggers an autoimmune response could basically trigger GBS. And so for me, uh, I went through childbirth, I had surgery uh, with the C-section. Um, so those are actually quite common triggers of GBS. And so they think that it was probably the childbirth um, or the surgery or, or together, the two of them together um, that uh, triggered based on the timeline. So most people that are diagnosed with GBS, uh, it usually comes on around two to four weeks after some sort of event and not always there's a lot of people unfortunately that are ne never able to pinpoint that trigger for them um, but about 60 percent of cases they're able to kind of look back and say yeah two to four weeks ago this is what happened something happened um, and so for me that was childbirth now, do you think there, in your information, I tried to do a little bit of research myself in regard to this particular syndrome, uh, just because I myself uh, am affected by an autoimmune disease, so I'm familiar with the fact of your body attacking itself and understanding what happens when that takes place. Um, did, did they give you any indication as to whether or not, um, like how you, they typically treat it, just to help educate our listeners and our viewers? How, how is something like this treated? What did they do for you? Yeah, so basically, as soon as I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed through a spinal tap. So it's basically a, a lumbar puncture, um, spinal tap in the spine where they take the fluid out of the spine and they can see that the protein levels are elevated. And that's how they diagnose GBS. And so immediately from that uh, diagnosis, they started treatment. And treatment, uh, I had two different kinds. Uh, so IVIG is one kind and plasmapheresis is an, as another treatment that they do. And I actually had both, um, I think for, for various reasons, but one of them, I think it was just that they, they, this hospital that I was at had wanted to just try them both, uh, which isn't always typical. Sometimes it just depends on the hospital that you're at and what they have access to. But with IVIG, Basically, uh, they are, it's a pl blood transfusion. And so they are taking the blood out of my body is what they did. And then they were replacing it with donor blood um, or bl donor plasma and uh, hoping that basically the, the new antibodies can be replaced. And uh, with, with plasmapheresis, it's a little bit different where they're cleansing the plasma. So they take my plasma out and then they cleanse the blood, hoping that they're ridding um, my body of the, um, the antibodies that are, that are not doing what they're supposed to be doing and uh, then putting that back into my body. So that's the treatment that I had. And uh, I did IVIG for about five days and then I did plasmapheresis for about five days. And with those treatments, it's it's really important to, for people to know that they don't cure it absolutely what they what the studies have shown is that the long-term effects um, are, are greater when they've had these treatments so those that have IVIG or that have plasmapheresis they go on to have better outcomes they have better recoveries it doesn't stop it in a track in its tracks or anything it doesn't all of a sudden cure you uh, which is actually what I thought was going to happen. And they had hoped that that it would slow things down, but unfortunately it didn't. So I had the treatment immediately uh, within those first day and a half. And from there, I just got worse and worse and worse. And so that was very disheartening for me to get treatment, but not see any improvements and for my body to just continue to get worse. So like I said, the paralysis just spread through my body until eventually I could no longer move anything. I could no longer even move my head, tilt my head. Um, I could, luckily I could still move my mouth. So I communicated with my family and friends. Basically they would point to letters on the board and I would slowly just blink my eyes or mouth words. Uh, it, it did get to a point where it was so severe that it spread upwards almost to my eyes where I could no longer mouth words anymore. And they're telling me people recover, people do get better from GBS. It just takes time. You just have to have hope and you just have to keep fighting. 
but when you're completely paralyzed and, and you can't breathe on your own and everyone's in ICU and you think that they're saying goodbye to you, you don't really believe that. And, and especially with GBS, again, I'd never heard of those words before. I never knew what that was. And they're telling me it is quite rare. And to me, I'm very heavily sedated and on a lot of drugs. To me, I felt like I was the only person in the world with GBS. I felt like I was one and in seven billion, uh, which is not the fa the truth uh, by any means. But at the time, that's what it felt like. And so I just, I truly did not believe that I was ever going to get out of the hospital, that I was ever going to recover from that. I didn't feel like anyone understood what I was going through. And for a very, very long time, uh, several months, I, I didn't believe that I was going to get better because I, I just continued to kind of get worse. I plateaued and my daughter's there. My family is trying to keep me connected with her and they're putting her on my bed, but I am paralyzed and I can't do anything and I can't talk and I can't hold my daughter and I can't be the mother that I'd always wanted to be. So I just felt so lost and so broken for such a long time. Yeah, that's an, I mean, that's an intense uh, experience, especially when you feel helpless and there's, there's nothing that you can really do to get past that. And, you know, as a parent, I understand that uh, vulnerability and the, and uh, I empathize with you because it's very difficult to say, I can't do something for my child. I can't hold mm -hmm. my child. I can't, you know, tell my child I love them or that yeah. everything's going to be fine. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm sure that uh, there were so many things running through your head at that time, you know, understandably. Yeah, I was quite, uh, I mean, very obviously very upset and, and sad that I couldn't be the mom that I wanted to be. And I couldn't, I felt like my life was just robbed and taken away from me. I I'd never even got the chance to even put her in her stroller yet because it was, it was just the first three weeks at home. Like we'd barely left the house yet. We were still mm -hmm. recovering. We were still getting used to being new parents. I was still adjusting to being a first time mom. And so then all of a sudden I'm paralyzed and I'm in ICU and the sadness actually quickly turned to anger and I was quite angry for, for a while. Uh, there was many times where I refused to have my daughter on my bed with me because it was just too heartbreaking yeah. to, to know that I, I couldn't reach out and touch her. She was reaching out to touch me and I could feel that, but I was dealing with severe uh, anxiety for one for being on the ventilator always be not, always struggling to breathe and never knowing if I'm going to catch that next breath. So always having a fear that I'm, I'm going to die and I'm not going to be able to breathe. Uh, I was dealing with severe pain. So that, that pain that I was experiencing on that first day, the tingling and the, and the pain was, was basically from the nerve damage. So mm -hmm. the autoimmune basically attacking my nerves. So it's attacking the nervous system. And it's causing severe inflammation in every part of my body. And so what started in the neck spread to every part of my body, every, every single nerve felt like it was on fire. It felt like every single touch was exaggerated. It felt like somebody was taking a hammer to my body and it was excruciating pain that no narcotics could even barely touch. We had pain specialists in. Uh, I was on so many different medications that it was causing severe nausea and, and uh, vomiting. So I'm vomiting up to like 15, 30 times a day. And it was just, it was just horrific, horrific. And at the same time, my daughters, they are very fortunate that the hospital that I was at um, was so accommodating and, and said, you know what, like we, we believe that her daughter needs to be here with her. And so they brought up a bassinet and put it right beside my bed. And she was there with me pretty much every, every step of the way, as was my family as well. Well, I think it's, a, I mean, Personally, I think that's a great motivation, yeah. you know, to put your daughter next to you. That, you know, I think that would, that would motivate, well, my kids motivated me to get out of a wheelchair. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it, it's, a, it's a great motivation and inspiration to look over there. So I'm sure that you probably not thought that there wasn't an end to this because you spent like, uh, like three months in yeah. uh, paralyzed. I know you spent like 126 days in the hospital, but you spent three months of it actually being paralyzed, which, uh, as you just described, has got to be unfathomable to have to, to kind of realize. 
Yeah, so it was, it was almost three months. And um, like I said, like, just not really believing that I'm going to get better, even though the doctors and the nurses are telling me you can recover from Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, you just have to, you've got to get off the ventilator for one. That's the most important thing. Um, but I'm just really struggling. But my daughter, like you said, was such an inspiration to me. Um, there were very few really good moments between us, um, but it was my motivation and I wanted to get back to her. I wanted to push through the pain and, and maybe see if I could maybe get out of ICU one day. Uh, so the first step to getting better, uh, was getting off the ventilator and that was the hardest part of my journey for sure. Uh, so I had a, it started with a tube in my mouth actually. And so that's, I wasn't able to speak or, or mouth words or anything. And that was, uh, the breathing tube in my mouth. And then after about 10 days, when I wasn't showing any signs of, of improvement with my lungs, they moved the tube to my throat. And that's uh, basically a tracheotomy is what I had. So I had a trach tube. And uh, to be able to get off the trach, you have to be able to breathe on your own for more than 72 hours. And so when we're starting the weaning process, this was about six or eight weeks, I think, after being in ICU. And uh, they're saying you need to be able to breathe without the ventilator for 72 hours. And... It just seemed so impossible. We would try for 15 seconds at a time and then I would be bawling and I would be screaming and they'd be silent screams because my vocal cords didn't work because I just, I felt like I was never going to be able to breathe on my own. And it felt like I was running this marathon that I'd never trained for. So I would have the doctors put me back on the ventilator and we'd say, we just, we're going to try again tomorrow. And I actually had a uh, GBS survivor that came to visit me because the doctors and nurses, they saw me losing hope. Every time that I tried to, to make it through a day, I, I just couldn't. I would wake up the next day. I felt like I was reliving my life. It felt like Groundhog Day. Every day was exactly the same as the last. So much pain, so much suffering, nothing improving. And my daughter's getting older. She started out, she was just over a month old or, or just, yeah, just a month old. And then she's two months old and then she's three months old and, and she's changing drastically in front of my eyes and I'm not getting any better. And so I just was losing hope. But uh, the doctors decided, you know what, we need to bring someone else that's been through what she has and inspire her. So this man came to visit me. His name is Kit and uh, he came and he brought me a sign and it said, courage doesn't always roar. Sometimes it's the quiet voice at the day's end saying, I'll try again tomorrow. And that was pivotal for me because I realized like, you know what, I'm not, I don't feel strong and I don't feel powerful and I don't feel like I can overcome this, but that doesn't mean that I can't. That doesn't mean that I can't just try again tomorrow. So when we were doing those breathing trials, I said, you know what, I can always just try again tomorrow. So I would try again tomorrow and the next day we did 30 seconds and then the next day after that it was it was a minute and a half and slowly I progressed um, at the around the same time the paralysis started to fade so like the doctors said eventually uh, the paralysis faded and my I started to recover so it came back exactly where that first symptom was with the tingle in my fingertips. So my fingertips were the first thing to start moving again. And my family was ecstatic because they thought that was the, the sign that I was going to get better. But for me, it was still very difficult because a fingertip moving meant really nothing to me. <laughs> it didn't mean that I was getting out of ICU or anything, but I just, I knew that I had to just keep fighting and just keep going one day at a time, sometimes one hour at a time. And uh, we worked really hard on that, uh, off that ventilator and slowly it turned to 15 minutes and then two hours and then six hours. And then eventually I made it to the full 72 hours and uh, I was able to get uh, the ventilator off and I was able to get that tube out of my throat and I could breathe on my own again. And that was, I'm sure, an ecstatic day. It was. It was. And I remember at the time thinking, you know what, I don't know if getting out of ICU is going to solve my problems because I still had a long road ahead of me and I was still 
quite paralyzed. So by the time that the uh, tube came out of my throat, uh, my arms were starting to move. But if you can picture like a newborn baby and what they're like, or like even like a three month old baby and how they're learning how to use their arms again, that's what it was like for me. Uh, so I, I still was like, you know what, I, I don't know what I'm what life is going to be like for me. And I was so much uncertainty. There was so much talk about being in a, in a wheelchair. Um, when I got out of ICU, I wasn't even able to be in a wheelchair. I was still so weak that I couldn't even sit up properly in a chair. Uh, so there was so much fear. But when I got that ventilator out and I could talk again, uh, it was life changing. And to go to overcome what I did when it, with breathing, because at the time I had really I'd written myself off and I had said, I don't think I can do this. I, I, I don't think that I'm ever going to be able to breathe on my own again. And then to go through it and to make the steps and make the progress. And then one day I was able to breathe on my own was life changing. And it made me realize just how strong we are as human beings. It made me incredibly grateful of what the human body is capable of recovering from. I, I, I had deemed breathing on my own again impossible. That was an impossible task that I was never going to do. And then when I reached that goal, it was like, oh, girl, you are so strong. You have, you can do anything. And so it really, it, it just kind of enlightened this flame inside of me to just go after everything. And so that it was a huge hurting point for me was getting out of ICU. I was moved to uh, another ward um, in the hospital. I was put with uh, the stroke and neurology ward. And so a lot of stroke patients, many people that were in their 70s and 80s. So I was the youngest on the ward by a long shot. Um, and that's where I basically started my journey to recovery. And I was learning how to do everything again, just like my daughter, which was very empowering to be able to know that I wasn't the only one going through this. Um, my daughter, she, she'd be having to learn how to hold bottles and, and how to hold toys and how to put her soother in her, month, in her mouth. And so I did the same thing. It was like, okay, well, I got to learn these things too. And uh, it was humbling to be like, you know what? I've already learned all this and she hasn't. So this is, this is, this should be easy for me. I mean, it certainly was not, um, as I know that, you know, as going through that kind of stuff as well. Um, but it, it, it definitely made me um, inspired to try and to just push myself because I knew that I had that strength and that I could. Well, it was a unique experience you and your daughter have, uh, having to learn that together. Absolutely. My, my goal was to walk before she did. So uh, obviously she was only, it's about three months old uh, by the time I was out of the hospital or sorry, out of the, out of ICU. And, uh, but I, there was just so much uncertainty with GBS. Everybody's case is so unique mm -hmm. and so different. And so it's really hard to predict what recovery will look like. About 70% of GBS patients do recover well enough to be walking again. About uh, 30% are, are, uh, required to use either like a cane or a walker or in a, are left in a wheelchair. So there was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fear and not knowing what life was going to look like. And, but I, I knew that I had to just at least try. I had to at least put my one foot in front of the other every day and put in the work within physiotherapy. And I learned how to hold cutlery and how to feed myself again, how to hold my daughter and how to hold her bottle and how to take care of her. And then it was taking care of myself and learning how to brush my teeth and my hair. And, and eventually I got strong enough that I could stand. Um, so that was, it was a long journey. I mean, when I, a lot of people will look at my before and after pictures and they'll go, wow, what you've been through is just amazing and and you just had such an incredible recovery but people don't really see the in between and the hard work yeah. that went into it uh the so the frustration the anger the denial the uncertainty the fear the yes absolutely and and, and the hard work and, and, the, hard and work. the pain and the and the struggles yeah so i, I uh, basically had to strengthen my my muscles and that was priority was working out those muscles every day and, and regaining the muscle that I lost. I lost 30 pounds in the hospital. Um, I'm quite small to begin with. So I was just skin and bones. 
and uh, eating tons of protein and eat, and just eating tons of ice cream. I remember them feeding me so that I could regain that muscle. Darn. And uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, just worked really, really hard. And uh, eventually I was moved to a rehabilitation hospital uh, that specialized with um, GBS patients. And uh, there, that was also life, very life-changing for me as well, because I met so many patients there that were learning to walk again like me, but there was also a lot of patients that uh, they were completely paralyzed from various disorders or mm -hmm. from um, car accidents or, or other sort of um, issues, and they were paralyzed for life. Um, so it was very eye-opening for me to know that, you know what, I have the opportunity um, I, I, I can possibly recover from this disorder. I don't know for sure. I, I don't know if I'm going to be that 30% that's left mm -hmm. using a wheelchair or walker, but I do know that many people survive and recover from this. And there's a lot of people here in this hospital that, that won't get out of a wheelchair. And so I have to at least try and I have to fight and work as hard as I possibly can. And so that's what I did. What do you think your main motivation was? What inspired you the most? Absolutely. My daughter. Um, she just knowing that, like thinking about all the things that I wanted to do, I had this vision in my mind of our life together and all the things that we were going to do. And then all of a sudden it was, well, you might be in a wheelchair now, or you might be in a walker. And it was like, I have all these plans. Like I wanted to take her for a walk. I wanted to go walk down the block with her in her stroller. Would I be able to do that? I don't know. Would I be able to go swimming with her? Would I be able to go jump in a pool? Would I be able to play tag with mm -hmm. her? And there was so many unknowns. And so I think that was just a huge motivation that it was like, well, I at least have to try because otherwise I'm not going to be able to do those things. Um, but the other big motivation for me was throughout this entire thing, um, I had a lot of family members that put pictures up on the wall in the hospital uh, of, of my life and, and everything. And I think it was a really good reminder too, that I wasn't just fighting for my daughter. I was fighting for me for and mm -hmm. fighting for, to get back to me. And, and I was more than just a mother and a, and a brand new mom and a wife. I, I was me. And so I knew that there was so many things that I wanted to do in my life that I hadn't even got the chance to do because I thought I had my whole life ahead of me. And so that was a huge motivation for me was like, you know what, you've got so many things that you still want to do one day. You have to work hard to get there. Yeah, kids are kids are a motivation for many, many, many things and inspiration for many, many things. So I that's um I think that's fantastic that that was your motivation. That was your inspiration. <laughs> gotta gotta do that and grow up with have your child grow up with you and yes. doing those things would be a motivation for I think most of us actually. Absolutely. And it was actually it was it was so it's it soon seems crazy. Like a lot of people will say, I can't believe you went through what you did with a newborn. I can't even imagine. Um a lot of people that have gone through GBS um don't have a newborn there with them. And so right. you feel like it's that much more traumatizing. But on the other side of things, I look at the silver lining and I'm like, I can't imagine her not being there. Uh, because she was such a motivation and she was also like our little guardian angel because she was she seemed like she knew that everything was so horrible and so she needed to be on her best behavior so she re really was like just perfect and she she rarely cried in icu and she always did such funny little things as as new babies do right and so our family not just me but our family was just so grateful that she was there because she was this nice kind of distraction and she brought so much joy and laughter into our room in icu that we would have never gotten if she wasn't there so i can't even imagine not going through gbs without her that's fantastic, actually. That I um that makes my heart feel good. Um, do you, who whose idea was it to uh, document everything? So that was my mother's, um, and 
she got the idea actually from that that same man that brought in that sign for me kit um because he had documented his journey and when i say he um his family had documented what he had gone through and i'm not quite certain why they decided to document i think it was just that they wanted to show him his recovery and and show him that he was going to get better um and so my family thought that they should do the same thing so my mom yeah, this was probably about a week and a half after i um had been diagnosed she brought out her expensive uh, video camera at the time this was before iphones uh so yeah, she started rocks. yeah yeah exactly so she she started videoing me and i remember at the time being quite frustrated and kind of being like why are you videoing me <laughs> these are my most vulnerable moments but my mom really insisted and thank god she did uh because she was able to even even uh, as soon as I got out of I ICU and I was a lot more coherent because I was quite heavily medicated during those three months. And although I was completely aware of what was going on, I was still pretty out of it. Um, so after I got out of ICU and the meds came down, um, I was much more aware. And at that time, I was still struggling mentally and still not knowing and still still so unsure about my future. And on there was a lot of hard days still and, and a lot of sadness and grief. And on one particular day, my mom's like, okay, we're going back and we're looking at these videos. And so she showed me all the videos from the three months before. And it was just so eye-opening for me to know where I was now at that point where I was starting to get movement in my hands again. I'm talking, I'm, I'm able to like sit up on a bed and then see myself completely paralyzed looking um, just almost like I'm dead. Like I, I look like I'm in a coma and just so out of it and realizing, you know, you are getting better and, and this is proof. And so that, those those videos were life changing for me to be able to be able to compare how I was and and how I was doing now and again it's just that motivation to go okay I I've been there if I I've come from there and I've got to here then think of how much farther I can go so those videos ended up being such a blessing for me um, after I recovered after I went home and and was doing so much better and was back to life I put all those videos together and I spliced them together and I put them out on YouTube and I was like you know what people need to know about GBS and they need to know what it's like to recover from this and I, it was just mind-blowing but it went viral and it just really changed my life so I am so grateful that my mom took the time to record me in ICU yeah, that's fantastic that your mom did that. I think that sometimes we all have to really think and stop and realize where we have come from mm -hmm. and where we're at now to understand that, wow, I did come through that and I do have the ability to move forward in life in a very good way, in a positive way, which you've done. And now you manage your disease pretty well, but you manage it a lot with uh, fitness, don't you, and, and diet, fitness and diet. Yes, I do. So after I recovered, so like once I got out of the rehabilitation hospital and uh, I uh, learned how to walk again, basically, and it was it was a long journey. Uh, but once I got to that point and I'd recovered well enough to go home, went home and was reliving my life and was back to being a mom. But I was certainly not back to normal. I still had a lot of residuals. Um, I still had weakness in various parts of my body. Um, getting down on the floor was very challenging. And um, I couldn't run if I even tried to run. It was just really awkward. And and uh, picking up my daughter was hard. And, and just things were still very, very challenging. And I was dealing with a lot of fatigue as well and, and nerve pain. And... Uh, I also knew that my recovery was on me. So when I was at the rehab hospital, I was I was working out two to three times a day with uh, my OTs and my PTs. And so when I got home, all of a sudden that was gone and that was done and I wasn't back to normal. And so it was hard for me to be like, hey, well, it's all on me now. It's I don't have anybody's help anymore. And so it really put this onus and this responsibility on me that I knew that if I wanted to get stronger, it was in my hands. I had to be the one to put in the work and I had to be the one to get up off my couch and, and do these exercises. So I started doing that and I, I just, I seen an improvement with my strength 
I'm doing exercises and gradually over time, I'm getting a little bit stronger. And I'm noticing that when I'm exercising, it's actually helping with my fatigue. It's giving me more energy. I'm noticing that it's helping with my pain. And it's just really, really improving my life in a, in a, in a greater way. And so from there, I just never stopped. And I just continued exercising and ended up falling in love with fitness, ended up um, getting into strength training and yoga and running. Eventually, I got into running and uh, it really just changed my life for the better. Yeah, especially going from from being paralyzed and not being able to walk and having to learn to walk again. Go from that it to gave me, Yeah. It gave me such a gratitude in my life, um, just knowing what I'd overcome and knowing all those people that I met back in the hospital that uh, didn't have the ability to recover, or all those people that were left paralyzed for life, knowing that, you know what, I have the ability to move my muscles again. I have the ability to go to a gym and, and run on a treadmill. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I wanted to use those abilities. Well, I think it's a, I mean, obviously, I think it's a very positive thing, exercise and, and I don't know if you use diet in conjunction with that, but uh, managing my disease, I use exercise and I use diet and that's what helps me control. I have severe rheumatoid arthritis. Mm-hmm. I mean, like severe, severe. Uh, i on nine different drugs that I'm on, I have been on. I'm not on any longer. Um, I manage okay, most so. of it with, uh, uh, well, I can't say most of it, all of it. Uh, with uh, diet and exercise. Amazing. And, yeah. And that's, that's what I've really found too, is like the more active I am and the healthier that I'm eating for sure, that uh, the better I do feel. The better it does. Yeah. And I think that goes for any autoimmune disease. Realistically, we can say that to everybody out there who has any form of, of autoimmune disease, explore those options of diet and exercise and see if it fits into your routine and uh, talk to your doctor and find out, you know, if they have any recommendations for you as well, because it is, you know, um, it it is, and when I say this, obviously, my journey wasn't near what your journey was, but I spent four years in a wheelchair. So going, I understand when you go from being a very active individual, I was a police sergeant, I had a team of 13 guys, you know, um, when everybody was running away from, I was running too, mm-hmm. you know, it was very, very uh, active in my job and on way to lieutenant commander on up the line and it was cut short by my incident what happened to me and um, when you spend time where you lose the ability to do certain aspects in your life when you get it back it is like receiving a pot of gold Absolutely. And, and I love, yeah, I and love you, that you said it like that. Yeah, you nurture it and you baby it and you take care of it because you really understand when you lose it, how valuable it was in the first place. Mm-hmm. You take things for granted. We all do. We take things for granted because we think, oh, well, like you said, I'm 26 years old, never going to happen. And, yeah. you know, I, I, when I got into my incident, I was, I'm going to give away my age here in a little bit. 38. I think I was 38. Still so young. 38 years old when it happened to me. So, you know, it, you know, I had this big S on my chest too. Not just because I was a sergeant. <laughs> I try to tell everybody it's because I was a sergeant. That's why the S was on my chest. But you think you're invincible and you think nothing is ever going to happen to me like that. So when you lose it and you get it back, it's an absolutely wonderful feeling that you want to hold on to and grasp and nurture and grow and take care of. So, you know, well done in that regard that you, you do forward in that. And I, you know, I know that you, you reinvented your life. Are you still, are you still um, working with human resources? I know that you, you do have a fitness program, which we'll talk about in a minute here, that you help others with. And you, you did write a book, right? Yeah, so it completely changed my life. Um, After I recovered from GBS and after I was uh, basically recovered as much as I I believed that I was going to recover, um, obviously still deal with a little bit of residuals, but um, I just had this new lease on life and I, I wanted to do all the things that I'd never done before. I also wanted to bring awareness to Guillain-Barre syndrome. So like when I was going through it, 
we'd never heard of it. I believed that I was never going to recover from it. And then I did. And so it was so important for me to bring not only awareness to people that had never heard of it, but bring that awareness to people that were going through it, that even if it feels like this is it for you and it feels like your life is over, there is life after GBS and I'm proof. You can see the videos, you can see what I've gone through and you can see that I've recovered. Uh, so there is always room for hope. So I started a, a social media uh, channel and I started talking about my journey more and just sharing videos and answering questions and and my video went viral and all of a sudden I had people all over the world reaching out to me asking me questions about GBS and uh, it was just so rewarding to know that I was helping other people that had gone through what I did that I was giving them hope now because I knew what it was like to be so hopeless um, when I was in ICU and uh, it changed my life and I went on this new path um, so I, I still to this day I still do work in human resources um, contract uh, but my passion really is in GBS advocacy so I joined uh, the GBS foundation there's a foundation in Canada as well as in the USA as well um, but uh, the Canadian board I ended up joining their board of directors and I, I, I love that part of my life, uh, being able to connect with other survivors, to make changes, to raise money, uh, just to do anything to kind of help the disorder and the community uh, because it is such a rare illness. It's obviously not going to get as much uh, research or, or as much um, just anything kind of compared to like cancer or any major uh, other diseases. So just kind of doing my part has just, it's just been so rewarding for me. Um, I, from there, I mean, I was on social media and I had all these people reaching out to me asking me, how did you do it? How did you recover? And I, I didn't know a lot about fitness. All I knew was what I had gone through my my own experience. And so from there, I started researching um, exercise and, and what it would be like to be a trainer. And so I actually pursued my uh, fitness training certification, uh, got that and started working with uh, GBS uh, survivors, basically, and, and other people as well. I've worked with quite a few different uh, people with various different struggles, uh, but just to be able to show people that, you know what, to see where I've been, I've been completely paralyzed. There's always room for hope and there's always room for improvement and, and strength training is, is an amazing thing that you can do for your body. You know, it, it's, it, it's much better, I think, when you have somebody that's training you that has been there and been through it and understands it and can empathize with those that are going through it. So it's not just somebody... I have respect for trainers because in rehabilitation <laughs> therapist, because I'm gonna have to go through some more here soon, so I have to make sure I say the right thing. <laughs> <of this. laughs> um, but it is—it's a difficult journey, and um, when you come to it from a perspective of really understanding it from the inside out, it makes you so much better at what you do to help others because you Absolutely. have been there, done that. You know, you have been there, done that. So I think that would make you like a very, well, you kind of a tool. You're a tool in somebody's toolbox to help them go through their ordeal. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I found that a lot of people um, that have gone through GBS or other illnesses as well, I find that a lot of uh, autoimmune or a lot of chronic illnesses, we have a lot of the same residuals, which is a lot of the fatigue and pain, right? And so... Mm -hmm to be able to have that empathy for them and to understand what they're going through um, and that some days are better than others and some days we need to know when to rest. We need to know when not to push, um, but we also need to know when you do need to push. So. Do. Yeah, that's a good, yeah. good point. Very good point. Very good point. And I think that, that coming at it from this perspective is a more holistic, naturopathic way to help people to manage this, like that disease, your disease, like my disease, it unfortunately has to be managed. It will never go away yeah. and, and it'll yeah. always kind of be there, I think, at least from what I've read about, about yours. Yeah. Um, so managing it is the, the next best thing yeah. to do is to manage it effectively and efficiently. And I think you're providing tools to people to allow them to do that you know, in that very same way, effectively and efficiently. Um, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me. Can we talk about your book a little bit? 
Yeah, absolutely. So when I had recovered from GBS um, within probably the first year of recovering from GBS, it was impossible to kind of explain everything that I went through. And people were coming to me saying, what was it like to be in ICU? And what was it like being in the hospital? By the time I left, it was uh, 126 days. And so it was so hard to explain that in one conversation. I would talk to my friends, I would talk to my family, and I would start telling them about some of the things and then we'd run out of time. And it was like, we'll leave that for another time. And I was like, you know what, I should write a book. And I writing a book was something I'd always actually wanted to do. It was something I, I loved and excelled in English uh, growing up. And I just never had anything to really write about. And so now I did. So at that time, I, I wrote my book and I, I very quickly wrote what I'd gone through. And it was really just um, a way to explain to my family and friends what I'd gone through. And I published that book, uh, it came out within a couple of years of, of my recovery. And uh, it reached so much farther than I imagined. I thought that it was just going to be my close friends and family. Uh, but all of a sudden, I had people purchasing it from all over the world, a lot of GBS survivors, a lot of family members uh, who were going through or their family members were recently diagnosed with GBS and they wanted um, answers. There's a lot of uh, medical professionals that were trying to learn about GBS. And so again, that also led me on this new path um, in my life. Uh, and so from there, that was kind of when I got more involved in the GBS Foundation and and uh, my book like that book has gone has sold over 15,000 copies and I really didn't plan on it it was just kind of there for my close friends uh, but my my journey has has changed so much and I've I'm so active with the GBS community and with the, the GBS Foundation now um, and so so much has changed it's been now 12 years since my diagnosis and there's there's been so many new things that I've learned about GBS and about the recovery process and about um, the things that the the patients go through and uh, I wanted to incorporate that so instead of writing a new book I actually pulled my other one and I rewrote it and I added chapters and I, I incorporated it the, all the, the 10 years plus that happened and what happened basically after I had recovered and what life was like afterwards. I still, like I said, deal with a lot of residuals and how that's impacted me. I wanted to share um, how I've been able to basically get into uh, strength training and how I got into fitness and how I started training other people. And so there's just this whole new journey uh, within that book. And I've been writing that book actually now for five years and uh, it will come out in uh, January of 2023. That's fantastic. And how can somebody find you if they're interested in some of your fitness programs? Because I looked at them online myself and they yes. look like amazing. How would they get <laughs> so in touch with you? So you can visit um, hollyaftergbs.com is my website um, and that you can find out kind of everything about me there on that website. Um, there's uh, basically like my fitness stuff, my book, um, once it's available, will be there. Uh, you can contact me directly. All my social media links are there depending on your preferred uh, uh, social media platform. So I'm on I'm on TikTok, I'm on YouTube, I'm on Facebook, and I'm on Instagram. And uh, each platform is a little tailored differently, uh, depending on uh, what people are looking for. For example, my YouTube channel is really aimed at GBS survivors um, that are looking for support and, and questions. And so I actually answer a lot of questions on my YouTube channel uh, there. That's fantastic. And I think that I'll make sure I'm not I think. I will make sure that all of those links are uh, uh, on the webpage that's dedicated to your episode so that uh, people can find them quick and easy. Um, and the same thing with the, when the book comes out, please make sure that I get the information so I can uh, update the show notes and make sure everybody knows how to get a hold of your book. Um, I'm sure they can probably find it on Amazon in January, but let's send them a yep. reminder just in case. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. So we'll take care of that. And um, your daughter's probably at an age now that uh, she really... Um, kind of knows a lot about what you had gone through and how integral she was to your healing. Uh, so are you getting that relationship that you wanted? Absolutely. Oh, we have a bond that I don't think we would have had had we not gone through what we did just because I have that gratitude. So there's so much gratitude for being able to 
when I took her to her first day of school in kindergarten and I, and I walked her there uh, playing tag with her, taking her swimming, all those, th- those things that I just was so unsure if I would ever do them. Uh, they're just so rewarding for me. Uh, she certainly does not remember, but she's seen all the videos. She knows every detail. She's heard me talk about it so much. She's so involved with everything with GBS that oh, I think good. she feels like she. I think she feels like she was. She remembers, um, and yeah, it has really strengthened our bond. And um, I think it's just it's been such a blessing to to think about what I've gone through and come out and, and made it to where I am today with her. That's phenomenal. That's outstanding. Um, this is one more thing before you go. So before we go, do you have any words of advice that you might, or words of wisdom that you can share? Absolutely. My, my favorite, and I mentioned it already before, was that sign that that man brought me in ICU. It was, Courage doesn't always roar. Sometimes it's the quiet voice at day's end saying, I will try again tomorrow. And that's been really pivotal for me, not only when I was in ICU, because I stared up at that sign on my really hard days thinking, I can't do this. And I would look up at that sign. And I remember thinking, I'm I, you're like, I'm just, I'm not strong enough to do this. And people kept telling me, you're so strong, Holly, you're going to overcome this. And I remember feeling almost ashamed. Like I was like, I'm not strong though. I can't do this. And so that sign really reminded me that like, you don't need to be this strong warrior saying oh I got this all you got to do is just keep trying and just have that faith that things are going to get better and just try again tomorrow even if you can't do it today and that sign is on my wall and I look at it even when I was writing my book there was many times during the the journey of writing and the journey of publishing that has been very very challenging and it's been a great reminder Um, and I think it's a great reminder for anybody going through any hard time that you don't have to feel strong you don't have to feel powerful you just got to take it one day by day one hour at a time sometimes and just try again tomorrow brilliant words of wisdom i think we should all post that same sign on our wall that way we can get a reminder every day as well holly thank you very much for sharing your journey with us today i really appreciate you being here and what you do provide for the world and those individuals that are struggling through their own ordeals i think that uh, you're a great inspiration you're a great motivation and you're a great educator and uh thank you for being here Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share my story and chat with you. It was uh, such a such a great uh, day. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, and we'll see you. Hopefully, we can have another conversation down the road. I'll give you another. We'll do a follow up. See how the book comes out. That sounds great. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go. Check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform.